You're listening to Irish Radio Candidate Home and Abroad, and every year in September, the British Isles Family History Society of Greater Ottawa hold their annual conference. And each year it rotates uh, between Scotland, England and Ireland, and this year it's focused on Scotland. And every year some experts are brought from the country that it's being focused on to present at the conference and Bruce Dury uh, will be here this year and Bruce is considered one of Scotland's top genealogists with an international reputation. He's perhaps best known in the UK for his BBC radio series Digging Up Your Roots and A House with a Past and uh, Bruce started and directed the much acclaimed genealogical heraldic and paleographic studies programme uh, and that was leading to a postgrad certificate, postgrad diploma, at the, and a master's degree at the University of Strathclyde, Glasgow, Scotland. Bruce, thanks a million for coming along for a chat. Hello, Austin. How are you? It looks sounds like you've had a busy past. <laughs> it's been. Um, some people say interesting, and other people say a checkered career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> As I say, I often say I don't have a past; I have a history. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually originally a sort of medical scientist with, with an additional uh, doctorate in history. And when, uh, if, you, if you were a, a scientist with history, what then or where, I, well, I can see where that would lead you into genealogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, it was, um, how can I put it, I, I was working at universities in, in Scotland and um, when my son was very young, we were left as a single-parent family, so I thought, I've got to find something to do that allows me to work from home. So I thought, I'll write books and I'll profess genealogy. And this was back in the days before it really hit the internet, so I was able to catch the rising wave of internet genealogy and uh, take it from there. And, of course, genealogy itself and the technology surrounding genealogy has greatly improved over the last 25 years. It really has, and it's changed the, the work of professional genealogists. I mean, there was a time when we were the only ones who could go into the archives and look up, you know, physical records, scrolling through them and, and going through them and writing things down. And now so much of it is out there in the open that the job of the genealogist has now turned into more of a, a you know, can, can you check this for me or are there any accessory sources or... What do you make of this family tree or ancestry? Which the answer usually is, it's rubbish. Yeah. Um, and let's start from the actual documents. So my job, my, my crusade, if you like, just to get people to recognise the Lord of it is online, but to go to the actual documentary sources and not to trust anything that you find easily. So when you say that uh, enough of the results are rubbish, and before you and I started chatting here, um, you basically established some of the rubbish in my history. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there are different ways that people can test, and different companies provide different results, basically, is what you're saying. Um, to give a summary of the various types of results that people can get and where that leads them. What's out there? Oh, you're talking about DNA testing here, yeah? Well, there, there are three there are three floors of DNA tests. There, there's the Y test, which only men can take because only men have a Y chromosome inherited entirely from their father, his father, his father. So it takes you back what you might call the surname line, if you're lucky, uh, if the surname has stayed intact. Um, there's a mitochondrial test, and the mitochondria are inherited entirely from your mother, 
whether you're male or female. So that goes back from a person to his mother, her mother, her mother, her mother. And that's a bit less revealing. And then there's the one that most people take called the autosomal DNA test. That's the one that's touted by Ancestry, for example. And that purports to show you your your ethnic admixture and, you know, your... You're 40% British and 60% Norwegian and 3% Martian or whatever it has to be. Um, they can be a bit misleading for a couple of reasons. One is that they're not based on ancestral populations. They're based on um, surveys of present-day populations in a particular place and ignores any movements that would have been in the last few hundred years. And, of course, people who are even very, some very, very closely related, like brother and sister or two cousins, um, each of you will have a different admixture of your parents' and your grandparents' uh, DNA. So you could get quite a different answer between you and, let's say, your brother or your sister or your, your cousin up the road. Um, so you have to do a broad spread. For, for men, and especially if you're looking for the, the ethnic origin of your, of your surname, Comerton, where does Comerton come from? You're going to have to take a Y DNA test, and, and there's only one company for my money that does that, and that's Family Tree DNA in, in Houston. And that then, as you said, that would bring back along, in my case, the Comerton line. How far back, or potentially, uh, how deep am I being going to be able to dig on something like that? I mean, the great, the great thing is um, that you, you will find matches with other people, and you may be able at some point to say, here's where our two family trees collide, or at least we can say we're from the same barrage, as it were, 400, 500 years ago. The great thing about it is it actually fits with what we call the documentary period. Um, it's possible to make sense of our results five, six hundred years back, which is about the time that we, we have uh, documents, church records and all that stuff. From there, the closer you are in time, the better match will be, of course. But uh, almost every surname group, and especially Irish and Scottish clans and families, they have big surname projects where every every own McDribble has, has tested. And <coughs> excuse me, and you can build up a um, an idea of where the different kinds of that surname came from. Match them up together and say, "Hello, we must be from this branch, and you must be from that branch." and this guy's from the other branch, and that, that's a big industry today. Right, and again, just going back to when I say how far back, because like, uh, again, we chatted a little before we started here, to say in my own case, where um, there are places, there's a place in Scotland called Comerton, uh, any time we've tried to trace anything, we end up stopping, I think, at my great-great-grandfather. We haven't been able to find anything prior to that, and we tend to produce predominantly females. So, how in our situation, in my situation, or where am I potentially going to be brought if I went to and did a, a Y-DNA? I mean, ideally, you would match up with people who come from a particular area. You would say, oh, look, all these people, regardless whether their son is Comerton or not, are all originally from, you know, Fife or, or Inverness or Scottish borders, and therefore that's where you should be looking for the origin of your family. So, um, then let's switch to some of the... I, I know you're going to have a very busy uh, few days when you get to, um, to Ottawa. And uh, uh, by September, the weather should have cooled down a little bit here and probably cooled down over there too. Um, so you're going to come and you're going to talk about Scotland's people and Scotland's places and the National Library. Um, what are you going to be covering over the period of the, the conference? 
Well, I'll be doing five talks, actually, and one of the first ones is, is what you say there. Um, the, <laughs> the great thing about doing Scottish genealogy is that you, you and I'm not, I'm not being rude about these companies here, but you simply can't do it from family search or ancestry or find my past or whatever. The reason is they just don't have the records. And the reason for that is that Scotland won't give them records. You know, why should we? Frankly, um, they're all online uh, in Scotland and anybody can get to them. Scotland's got the, the, the most complete, the best kept and the most accessible set of records on the planet. But not many people know where to find the stuff. So this is part of my missionary work. You know, come over here and tell them where to get it. Quite a lot of it's free as well. Right. So, again, I'll come back to my own situation. Where should I be looking? Well, um, you know that you start, well, you've got at least three generations in Ireland, haven't you? Yes. And, of course, we have the usual Irish wall of that. Uh, everybody says all records were destroyed in Ireland, which is nonsense. The censuses before 1901 disappeared, but there are, there are lots of other records out there, too. And if you can work out where your family lived then it's possible you'll find an appropriate church record. And I have to say, the Irish are getting fantastic at putting all their records online. They wouldn't do it for a long time, you know, because the Irish tourist board, the board fighters said, no, you've got to visit here and eat food and drink the Guinness, stay in the hotels and stuff. Um, but they suddenly realised that nobody did, whereas people were coming to Scotland because they could get a whole set of records and say, I know my family comes from Ayrshire or Brecon, and therefore that's where I'm going to visit. So that they're starting to do that now, and there's a fabulous... Um, network of, of local sort of genealogy and heritage centres all over Ireland. But in your case, if you find the, the, the link back to Scotland, then you'll be looking in the website called Scotland's People for uh, statutory records if it's after 1855, church records if it's before that, since it's back to 1841, and a whole bunch of other stuff that I'll be telling people about. Scottish genealogy is easy if you know how to unravel it. It's like spaghetti. Yeah, yeah, but it's probably also as slippery as because. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, you've got to do it right. But then that's half the fun, isn't it? You know, if it was easy, it wouldn't be fun. But that's true. That's true. It's like um, trying to take your soup with a fork. Um, <laughs> so, so, who um, who are all the Scots, not Celts? Well, there you go. This this is the one that's going to cause all the all the bother. Um, the Scots and the Irish and the Welsh and the Cornish and the Bretons. We have an overall word for these people, don't we? We call them Celtic, yeah? And it's nonsense. They are not Celtic. This is a mistake made by one man 300 years ago and it's got perpetuated ever since. These people existed uh, identical to their modern-day equivalent long before the real Celtic civilization in, in Europe even got started. I mean, by a thousand, a couple of thousand years. So wherever they are, they're not Celtic. And the reason we talk about, oh, they all speak Celtic languages, comes from that same argument. The, this guy, Edward Lloyd, uh, who studied the languages, and he was, he was good at that, he was a great linguistic scholar, but he said, uh, all these languages are similar, and since all these people, the people, must have come from Europe, let's call them Celtic, so let's call the languages Celtic. And it stuck. And then it got hammered home during the late 1800s when all these romantic revivalist movements and nationalist movements kicked off. You know, the Irish Home Rule Movement and Welsh nationalists and the Scottish and, and the Breton Revival and so on. And they, you know, WBH and all that stuff, and they invented this, this 
um, Celtic heritage to make themselves different from the English. That's what it was all about. But it's the wrong word. Right. So I, so I have the delight of going to this conference, which is actually called, uh, you know, all these people who turn up saying we're Celtic, and you have to say you're not. And you can hand back the Celtic jewellery, you can stop playing the Celtic harp. <laughs> now, all these things are fine, just don't call them Celtic, you know. It's, uh, we have quite a different name for that culture. So would you then argue that our collective culture, and when I say collective, let's look at the British Isles, um, given that I'm sure you're aware in the last two weeks there was uh, some discoveries in Ireland uh, in, uh, close to um, Newgrange uh, because of the drought where they have actually found m new circles and uh, go back as we know with Stonehenge with Newgrange North Doth three, four, five thousand years that cultures that evolved um, were predating what, as you say, came from Europe. Yeah, that's, that's exactly... I mean, everybody must have gone to Europe at some stage. That's how you get there. But when, when the ice receded, the question is when. And uh, let's take Stonehenge out of the picture because that is so far in the past that there's no connection, really, with um, the people who live around that area now. They, they've disappeared. But certainly the, all, the, all the, the best archaeological evidence from Ireland, for example is that there were early Neolithic peoples there who then seem to have been added to by a different bunch of people uh, who are identical genetically with the modern-day Irish, and they got there about 2,000 BC, you know, four, four or 5,000 years, 4,000 years ago, way before there was any Celts. And of course they would build stone circles and houses and carve things on bits of stone and make pots and all that. Yeah, they would. So then looking at the uh, at Scotland, how far back from um, and mm -hmm. the aspect of the migration of people, where would the um, origin, or where would you see that, at what point are you saying, well, this we can say this is the starting point pre-Celtic, um, where the whole current, like, where we came from? Yeah, it's, I mean, Scotland's a, a mosaic nation. It's, it's, it's a jigsaw of four or five, maybe five different sets of people. You've got the original indigenous inhabitants, the Picts, that's people like me, short, stunted things. Actually, they once described them as tall. I don't know what went wrong in my family, but there we are. Um, they, they, were, they were joined about the 7th century BC by very similar people from, from Wales, speaking an almost identical language, who came up and, and uh, inhabited the area just south of Glasgow, they were Britons. Um, for that whole area, like a, one of the big towns there is called Dumbarton, that's Dunbreton, the, the hill forts of the Britons. And then you had this, the consolidation of the, uh, the Gaelic, uh, or as we say Scotland, the Gaelic people, north of Ireland and the west of Scotland. And it's usually, people talk about 500 BC, when that, 500 AD when that happened, but it wasn't like one big invasion. You know, this famous Machiavellian and his sons coming across. It was just a consolidation of something that had been going on for centuries or older, because they're only 12 miles apart, and if you've got a boat, it's no trouble at all. So there's, there's the Gaelic people. And then, of course, the, uh, the Angles turned up from the north of England. They're basically Danish and Germanic, and they swept into the southeast of England, of Scotland took it over and then, and then the Norse turned up at various times and attacked the, the north coast and the west coast and you know went down to Ireland you know Dublin is a 
there is a North City and, and so is Cork. So there's these five different groups of people with, with more modern overlays of people coming in from uh, Eastern Europe and Italy and, and, uh, and Poland and uh, things like that. But the original Scots had pits. And then in early history, we've got um, the Britons and the Gaels and the Angles and the, and the Norse. You notice I'm, I'm struggling hard here not to use the word Viking because that's the wrong word for them. Okay? But that's people we're talking about. Well, it's an admixture. And it makes a very interesting, very interesting um, picture to try and unravel. You know, we're not, uh, as, as a scientist would say, monophyletic in the way that, like, the people in Lapland are. You know, they're all from one, one stock. We're not. And consequently, when you say you're not from one stock uh, and it's a mosaic, um, that, as, from a, a scientific perspective, that does represent an awful lot of interest because if, if all you have is a, a sample of one it's not that interesting yeah I mean one of the other talks I'm going to be doing is can you can you can you match up area you know geographical area surname and DNA and, and it turns out you can't to a very high degree if you have a surname you can pretty much say they're likely to come from this place in Scotland and their DNA will look like this and if you've got just the DNA, you can say it's likely that they're called something like this and they come from this area. Very close match. Although people have moved around, there's still a pretty good mapping one-to-one-to-one of, of these things. You know, all the dribbles come from Glen Dribble and all the sweaties come from Inversweti. You know, there's that kind of argument you can still have. And that's why I say to you, Austin, you get your Y chromosome analysed and we'll tell you where the Comertons come from. <laughs> Is that something that is predominantly stronger in the British Isles than on mainland Europe? That because the Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales are islands, that the locality that people uh, were from, they tended to, to stay closer rather than if you were on mainland Europe where you could literally uh, be on a caravan and travel across the continent? Yeah, I mean, some of these reference sample populations I was talking about have been taken from places that are traditionally isolated. You know, you know, the top of a mountain in Croatia or a particular valley in Switzerland that happens to me. But sure, you're right. Um, Europe is, the, is a, a continent where people have swarmed around inside it for quite a long time. And there's a great benefit to being relatively isolated um, in, in an island. But... Uh, you know, we tend to think of the sea as a barrier. For those people, it was a highway. So we can't imagine they were completely isolated. And I've just done some DNA work for, for a guy who uh, is of Scottish origin, but actually his DNA suggests North Africa. Now, explain that one. Was this some mercenary that came over with, with the Romans and his ancestor just stayed? I was um, so then you also get into a thing that uh, kind of keeps families together or drives them apart, and that's Will's, Will's testaments, inventories, <laughs> retours. Uh, this, this is really interesting in, in Scotland. Scotland has, has a, a weird sort of legal system. You know, it's completely separate from the English legal system and, and uh, always was and always will be, um, and is still today. And one of the things is, well, people, they get a will and they, and, and they look at it and they, they come to me and they say, there's no mention here of what happened to the house or where the land went. And the reality is in Scotland that up until the 1860s, 
you couldn't leave uh, house, land, farm, you know, buildings in a will, or I should probably say a testament. Couldn't do it. There was a whole separate system for the inheritance of land. And all these records exist, and it's possible to do complete family trees as to who sat in this property all the way back, you know. Um, I'm going to be showing people where those records are and what you can do with them. And they're, they're an additional set of clubs in the genealogist bag that most people just don't know about. And that's going back to the 1500s, I see. In 1544 is the first, well, there's a set of records called the Retours, which is all about inheritance. And they start in 1544. But of course, there are land charters and so on that go right back to the year dot. Um, Scotland's a country that for some reason dearly loves a lawyer and uh, we've always been good at getting people to write things down and a lot of them, a lot of that stuff has survived has been indexed and calendared and in some cases transcribed and reprinted and there's quite a lot to go on And then I see your last session is uh, and I like this, regular and irregular marriages <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that, that well, actually we are. Um, the A regular marriage is anything the church liked, basically. Uh, the, um, the, the, the Scots are, a, are a, a minister-driven race, the same as the Irish are a priest-driven race. And we, we uh, the, the Church of Scotland always wants to control the whole business of marriage. But... It was the law in Scotland that all two people had to do was to stand up before two witnesses and say, we consider ourselves married, and then carry on behaving as if that were the case. And they were validly married. Now, the church hated it, and they called it irregular. Often it was made illegal at various times, but it was still valid. And you know, that didn't go away until 1939. And in many ways it's back again where we would now have common law marriage. Um, that's the word we don't use in Scotland because it doesn't mean what you think it means. But um, if, if the word marriage is a strange word, isn't it? Because it implies some kind of recording. Well, the point about irregular marriage is that they often weren't recorded. Sometimes they were. You know, the famous get married in, a, in, in the blacksmith's place at Gretna Green. They actually they were irregular, but they were written down. We kept records of them, and, and we have those. Um, nowadays, uh, you're right, it's all been reformed to the point where in Scotland, for example, there is no legal conduct of illegitimacy anymore. Nobody can be illegitimate. You've got two parents, that's it. Yeah. Um, so, Bruce, we've gone down through, scroll down through the, the um, agenda there, and it's a very wide-ranging that you're covering. Uh, I know we were, we were going to try and uh, refrain from talking about the Celts until a later, coming a little later on but I saw it prop up on the agenda too soon um, <laughs> we've done it, we've done it. Um, you know the whole conference is going to be fabulous, there's a lot of great speakers coming from all over the place and we're going to have a lot of fun and also it's a really lovely place to do it in, you know yeah and, and this, the, the tradition that has been established over the years of this conference and uh, how long it's been going on. It's uh, a real testament to the ongoing interest and the growing interest, uh, particularly in the, the British Isles, in the area around here and the connection that exists for so long between the British Isles and the area around here. 
So when you get here, will you have any of uh, what would have been uh, migrants from way back who, from your uh, picked background, that have settled in this area? Well, not as picked, but as, as modern Scots, let's, let's call them. You know, uh, of course, the whole of Canada has a very Scottish um, uh, feel to it, doesn't it? You know, it was, a, it was a guy from my hometown, you will have heard of him, Sir Sanford Fleming who drove the Canadian Pacific Railway right across Canada, designed the first postage stamp and, uh, and all that stuff. So we, we feel particularly connected with, with the Canadians. Well, Bruce, it's been fascinating chatting with you, and uh, we don't want to take all the content of your material and release it before you arrive here. The conference itself uh, will be taking place on starting on Friday, September 28th, and the official opening is at 7 p.m. And then the Saturday sessions get underway, registration 8 a.m. And uh, there's, uh, your, I think, your first up yes, uh, Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Uh, yeah, it's, that's from what I see. That's what your uh, Saturday at 9 a.m. And then you're back. Well, no, I'm, I'm, indeed, but I'm talking, I'm talking on the Friday as well because it starts, uh, starts Friday. Oh, I, okay, that's the other, yep, I have the wrong screen up here. And <laughs> you're also then on Saturday afternoon and Sunday. Uh, so you have two sessions Saturday, two sessions Sunday, and one session on Friday. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's what happens over here. Bruce, thanks a million for taking the time. It's been fascinating talking to you. I hope uh, that we get the opportunity to meet face-to-face -face when you're here in September. And uh, I now have a task to do, which is to go and get my Y-DNA test. Yes, you do, Austin. And there could be some surprises there for you. It's going to be fun. Yeah, uh, would, is, are there any possibilities of testaments and wills? Uh, I will. I think what I'll do, I'll have a look for you. And um, if that happens, we can talk again on the radio about your, your Scottish Comertons. How about that? And maybe there might be oil under where we... <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. You'll, you'll, you'll be lucky if you end up owning a, a sticker. Thank you. <laughs> Bruce Dury, thanks a million. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye.